0: I think that the recipe that you have as a child, whether you come from, you know, from Turkey or from West Africa, have become very visceral, very essential, you know. I mean, they transcend the level of the the physiological function of food. It's more than that. It's home. It's family. It's love. amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process. With your host, Emmanuel.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Flavors Unknown, the podcast that immerses you in the richness, diversity, and stories of the culinary world. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with acclaimed chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists across America. Today, we have a true superstar joining us. Not just any culinary maestro, but a legend whose career spans over seven decades, chef Jacques Pépin. Jacques's journey started in his family's restaurant in France, and from there, he cooked his way across the globe. His resume includes everything from serving as personal chef to French president Charles de Gaulle, to receiving the Légion d'honneur, France's highest order of merit. But his career isn't just about the grand gestures. He is also about his passion for sharing the joy of cooking, which was beautifully showcased in his famed collaborations with the late Julia Child. Together, they stirred up a delightful mix of camaraderie and culinary wisdom that left an indelible mark on the culinary world. And speaking of stirring things up, it's not just in the kitchen where Jacques wields his creativity. He's also a passionate painter, often creating beautiful works of art that reflect his love for the culinary arts. Beyond his culinary and artistic endeavors, Jacques Pépin's legacy extends into his philanthropic work. Through the Jacques Pépin Foundation, he provides free culinary training to those often excluded from the workforce creating opportunities for many to discover the joys of the kitchen. Today, we are privileged to deep dive into Jack's life, his work, and his extraordinary career. Hi chef, how are you?
0: I am great. Thank you for having me.
1: I am the one very honored and thrilled to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for thank you for your time. So as I mentioned to you, like you know, a few seconds ago, I was in the audience of the New York 92 Street when Anthony Bourdain interviewed you on stage. It was almost eight years ago now. It's amazing, you know, time flies. That was an amazing evening. you, you have been, you know, more than seven decades, you know, in in the business. So, so I, I'm curious, you know, your culinary journey began. In your family restaurant, you know, in France, and has taken you across the globe. So now when you're looking back and all this great experience, is there anything that you would do differently? Well,
0: thinking about it, not really. I mean, basically I'm very existentialist this way, you know. So I always think that, you know, you're free to do decision. Yeah, you do decisions sometimes would do not seem like a big deal. But that project you in a somewhere, and from that somewhere you project yourself somewhere else. I mean, I came to America to stay here for a year, and I've been here sixty years. You know, so, so sixty it, years, yeah. You do the decision <laughs> to change your life.
1: Yeah, that path is you will do it again. So that that jump that you did sixty years back, you will you will do it again and move from France to to the U.S.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yes, right. I mean, I don't know what I would have done in France. I mean, you know, my parents are the restaurant. I mean, most people who come to America usually come to get a better life. That is, economic life usually get better for political reasons, for racial reasons, religious reasons. I didn't really have any of that at all. I just wanted to go to America for a year or two, learn the language. and I mean, America was and still is the, the golden fleece, you know. So I wanted to come, I came and uh, I'm still here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so when you look back, I mean, you started working very, very young. And I and I remember, you know, Anthony Bourdain singing on stage, you were 13 years old, you know, what about child labor? <laughs> I remember that comment that he made, you know, at that time. So how did this early exposure shape your career? You know, you were 13. So, it's, well, it, you know, it was, I'm, I'm curious about that.
0: Yeah, it wasn't unusual, you know, at the time. I mean, in France. At that time and still I believe to you have to finish primary school, which usually is school until fourteen. And I was in that class, I think, when I was twelve or whatever. So I'm saying that to say it's not I didn't go on to school because I couldn't. I was pretty good at it. But at thirteen I passed all of the exam and decided that's it. I mean at that time you have to realize that life was quite different. I mean, at my house we didn't have the telephone. We didn't have a television, of course, and we didn't have a radio, no television. There was no really magazine, newspaper. So my father was a cabinet maker by trade. My mother ran a little restaurant, like many other women in my family there. So, you know, my choice was cabinet maker or cook. I never thought that I could be a doctor or whatever. You know, it was so far away from. Me. So, choice was easy in a sense, easier than for the kid now. And when I. There were other apprentices my age. I may have been the the youngest one, but basically the apprentices were between 13 and 16, something like that. So it wasn't wasn't unusual.
1: You you mentioned that, you know, you start cooking with your mother and at her restaurant. So can you share like a a memorable story from that time, something that you kept in mind?
0: Well, certainly at that time, you know, we went to school, my brother and I, and we uh, would never have gotten home home with a restaurant, and say, I'm bored. My mother said, you're what? You're bored? Or my father. There was always the bottles to wash in the store or this. And even before we went to school, we went to the market, you know, Quai Saint-Honoré, which is along the Seine River in Lyon, where there is an open market starting around, you know, five, six o'clock in the morning until 11. My mother would go to that market with two or three bags. We didn't have a car at the time. It's about 8, 10 blocks from the restaurant and walk the market one way and buy on the way back. Because so she'd buy a case of mushroom, which are turned in black. She, she knows the guy has to sell it. She tried to get it for a half price and tomato too. And we so, so we carry stuff for her back to the restaurant and went to school. So, you know, it was part of our life. I mean, the type of, of work that we did and, and in the kitchen, you know, I started cooking, doing things in the kitchen when I was six, seven, maybe. Yeah, that was from peeling potato to doing one thing or another. Yes, you can always
1: help. So, if there's one specific moment that made you switch and say, "This is what I'm going to do as my profession and become a chef." Or it was kind of a natural path, and and there was almost no question about it.
0: Yeah, I think I think it was a natural process. I mean, my brother, older brother, I have two brothers. He's an engineer. Was an engineer. He went to school, continued school. And as you know, in France, you, you, as long as you pass the exam, you get on and you don't really have to pay anything. So uh, it's true that I could not go to school. I just didn't want to. And I decided to do what I wanted. This is what I liked. And that's what I wanted to do that. So, yes, it was a, a very personal decision,
1: you know. So, there's one thing that I, I want to hear from you because, of course, it, it connects with my French DNA. You know, I moved out of France when I was 38. I moved, you know, in 2002 here to the U.S. But you had, you know, an experience as the personal chef of the French president, General de Gaulle. So how, how was that? <laughs> you know, this is like something really amazing.
0: Again, it wasn't such a big deal at the time. I started with where I was drafted in the, in the Navy. And my brother was, draft, was drafted also actually he was a, a sergeant because he was an engineer anyway so and he was already sent to Algeria. it was during the Algerian war. At that time, you didn't send two drafty at the same time because they, they had been a family where they had like five brothers killed draft so they made a law unless you were you know I mean you, you went there in a profession but was other drafty wanted to come back. so I was sent back to Paris. To actually La Pépiniere, which was the, the, the Navy in Paris. And I started uh, working for the best of the Admiral and so forth. Because at that time, I was working at the Plaza Atene, Maxim Fouquet in New York. I was going into a good restaurant. But at some point, I had a friend of mine, which I met him there, but he was from Lyon as well as I do, and uh, who came and uh, we became friends. And he, he, he ended up eventually getting the restaurants from my mother, anyway, later on. But at that time, he said, you know, I have been sent to to cook for Félix Gaillard, who was the minister of finance, you know, secretary of treasury And so he said, but I never work in Paris. I don't know how to do, you know, classic, can you come and give me a hand? I said, yes. So I did. And within three, four months, he was relieved from the army. He was a bit older than me. And then Félix Gaillard, the government, changed at the time and became the prime minister, and so I, they asked me, they asked me to come, and then that's when I became the chef to the prime minister. That is, it was the President du Conseil, Prime Minister, and as you know, under the Fourth Republic in France, the government was changing at a fairly rapid pace, and until the, I think it was in January '61 when De Gaulle changed the constitution to go to the fifth. But prior to that, the President of the Republic was Coty at that time. Didn't really have any power. It was the prime minister who had. So I stayed with, with Felix Gaillard, which I think seven months, something like that, and the government changed. And it was Simla, which was the mayor of uh, Strasbourg, I believe, who came for like six, seven weeks. On the 12th of May 58, there was a, a committee of salut public, revolution in France, against like algérie Algeria, Francaise, Algeria, you know, and De Gaulle came to power the 12th of May 1958. And I was there and I stayed with him. So
1: how, how was that experience being well, a chef? Well, you know,
0: I serve people, I don't know where, Nehru, Tito, Macmillan, I mean, those were the head of state at the time. But not ever once would everyone have called you for the dining room to get kudos. <laughs> that, that didn't exist. The cook was in the kitchen in this corner. Anyone came into the kitchen was to complain about something. I had never been interviewed, well, television barely existed, but on radio, newspaper, magazine, that did not exist. The cook at the time was really at the bottom of the social scale. Any good mother mm-hmm, wanted mm-hmm. their child to marry a lawyer, a doctor, certainly not a cook. So, you Yeah,
1: know, that was a blue-collar job, for sure. Yes, yeah, yeah, so
0: certainly I never had any of that type of publicity that chef would have now, and
1: that's one of the reasons
0: when I came to America, 1959, in 1960, I was asked to go to the White House for Kennedy. And yeah. I didn't. I went to work for Howard Johnson. And at the time, as I say, in the context of the time, I didn't realize the potential of that. I said, I've done that for a few years, and you know, I, I don't want to change to <laughs> that too. But I, I really, the cook was in a totally different position than now.
1: Do you think they would have changed your... Profile in your career here in the U.S. If you would have had accepted to be the the chef from President John F. Kennedy. No, I don't really. Have F- you thought F- about I that? Or you didn't really look? Never look back. And
0: no, I never really looked back. At that time, I would I had started going to Columbia University also. Since left school when I was thirteen. And I ended up going from Colombia to Colombia from 1959 to like 1973. You know, was doing a PhD, so it was a different world. The point is that also working for Howard Johnson was a different world. I mean, at at the White House, I would not really have learned that much. Howard Johnson was another world of production, marketing, chemistry of food, all kind of things that I didn't know anything about. When I left Howard Johnson, I was there 10 years, 1960, 1970. I opened a restaurant called La Potagerie on Fifth Avenue in New York, where I did production of soup. Then I opened the World Trade Center with Joe Baum. We served 40,000 people a day from the men's commissary. Then I was a consultant at the Russian Tea Room. I'm saying that to say that I would never have been able to do any of those jobs with my training as a French chef. Howard Johnson, uh, you know, changed my life in many ways, you know.
1: Before we continue with Jacques Pépin's fascinating journey, I'd like to take a brief moment to talk about something close to my heart. As you know, here at Flavors Unknown, we are all about diving deep into the stories and personalities that shape the culinary world. Recently, I had the privilege of extending this passion into a project that captured the essence of today's food culture. My recent book, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door, 50 American Chefs Chart Today's Food Culture, offers a unique behind-the-scenes look into the kitchens of 50 distinguished chefs across America. It is a must-read for anyone who loves food, be in cooking, eating, or simply appreciating the stories that our meals tell us. If you have enjoyed our conversation on the podcast, I am sure you will appreciate the depth and diversity of culinary experience the book offers. So I encourage all of you to pick up a copy of Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door at your favorite bookstore or online. Thank you for allowing me this brief interlude. Now, back to our captivating chat with the legendary Jax Pépin. <music> How was that transition from France to the US and, you know, working for a French president to, you know, becoming a restaurant chef, you know, in the United States? Yes. Well, I, w- I wasn't even the chef when I came here. I worked at the Pavillon
0: and Pierre Frenet I was the executive chef. And he hired me when I went to see him the day after I arrived. He said, you can you start tomorrow. And I became very friend with Pierre. And I worked with him for 13, 14 years because he was the vice president of Howard Johnson. That's how... Mr. Johnson was a regular at the Pavilion. Pierre asked me to go with him. So that's how it started. I, when I came to America, I live on 50th and 1st Avenue. And I think they just opened a little supermarket there. I forget the name. In any case, I went to the supermarket, and I thought it was a great idea. I'd never been in a supermarket. It was just starting here. I started going to the fish guy, the vegetable guy, the meat guy, everything under the same roof, much easier. But, of course, there was a lot of package, package, package. Package yeah. There was great meat. I mean, beef, lobster, rack of lamb, much less expensive than it would have been in France. But there was only one salad, it was iceberg. That's it. There was no leeks, there was no shallot, no... No vegetable. leeks, yeah. You know, and a lot of... So it was it was a different thing altogether.
1: It was, so, yeah. And, and, and uh, uh, I had exactly the same situation, the same experience when I went for the first time in the U.S., it was in '88, and I went in Wisconsin, and I started shopping in the supermarket, and there were three leaks yep. in the supermarkets. And I brought it to the cashier, and the cashier looked at them, and I said, "What is this?" Yeah, and she couldn't find the price. And I'm like, "What do you mean? They are leaks, <laughs> you know? It's like so obvious." I want to make soup with potatoes, and they were like, "I have no idea what you're talking about." <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's interesting, same experience. Yeah,
0: it, shows that it does change a great deal. I mean, there was no- yeah. Great cheese. There was no great wine. There was no great bread. There was none of that when I came to Lee and now uh, we have extraordinary products.
1: So, look, looking at at your career and evolution of of cooking, it's obvious when we read about you know about you. You read the, about your philosophy of cooking, which is about the simplicity in the cooking, focusing on you know taste over the presentation. So. Can you talk more about how you arrive in this philosophy and, and why it's important to you? Well, there is different reasons. One
0: of them is probably age, you know. I mean I'm eighty, I'm gonna be eighty-eight. <laughs> so your meta- your metabolism <laughs> your metabolism challenge, you know. Maybe the best book that I've done is a book called The Art of Cooking, which I did in the eighties. We did 34,000 picture. pictures. We did two two volumes with fifteen hundred pictures each. When I bought out old baby lamb, there I do. So it was more, certainly at a certain age, working great restaurant too, you tend to add, to add, to add to the plate more. You know, and eventually as you get older, maybe you don't need as much embellishment, you know. And, you know, if you have a great tomato out of the garden with the right temperature, a bit of olive oil on top too, that's it. You, you kind of take away from the plate to get... So there is part of that, part of your metabolism, part of changing. And also, interestingly enough, I don't think that I was ever very chauvinistic in my cooking. So very often I may be considered you know, the quintessential French chef. Well, you look at page 15 of one of my book and you see a black bean soup with with banana and cilantro on top because my wife being born in New York, but from Puerto Rican. Mother and Cuban in father. Cuba, yeah. And then I have a Shirazi Sushi next and I lost the role from Connecticut. So I'm probably to a certain extent the quintessential American chef now. <laughs> you know,
1: even <laughs> with I'm, all those influences, like, yes. Yeah. So how do you continue to find inspiration in the kitchen, you know, with all those years of experiences that you have? Do you still have this, you yeah. know, excitement? It's always of course, yes. It, it in a different way.
0: I mean at the beginning of the pandemic my daughter, Claudine, live in Rhode Island, and my son-in-law, Raleigh, he teaches at Johnson & Well too. Why don't you do a little video for Facebook? She was doing Facebook. I don't do Facebook. She said, video of like three, four minutes, show people what you have left over, Did that too. So we've done 300 of those. And we had like, uh, I don't know, 250,000.
1: 300, yes. wow. So we had
0: like <laughs> 250,000 people. I think we have 1.8 million people now on Facebook. And it's Claudine who does it. I, I don't even know. I couldn't tell you what she put today. She had all of those. <laughs> and, you know, sure. so I do them. And I do that with a friend of mine, Tom Hopkins, who I've been friend with for 40 yeah. years. Yeah. And so he's a professional photographer. He lives here. Uh-huh. And I've done, you know, 32 books. have done most of those. And he's the one who a few years ago decided to do a, an art for me. So he took my artwork. By padding and creating the outside, so we were close together when we did the video we still do we did about like twelve a day if we do them, but they' you know short. and so it's him and me in the kitchen he, even his wife didn't come at the beginning, but so I do the cooking and and wash my dishes, and he cook and he shoot with two cameras one fixed one and with his telephone, so it was very very limited production and kind of very very easy I and mean, because for me, I have done, you know, 13 series of 26 shows for PBS in the last 35 years. And each time we do one of those series, they have to raise $1.3 million in that too. It lasts for <laughs> weeks. You know, we do those shows. <laughs> that's a change, It costs about $300, you know, from you going to the market <laughs> and that's about it. So it's a different exactly. Thing.
1: It's different world well now with technology, for sure. Oh, and yeah. you still have like 1.8 million people, you know, watching it. So yeah, that, it's that, crazy. That, that's amazing. Huh? Yeah, that's what technology can do. And if you think about your creative process, do you think it's it's easier with time or more difficult to be creative? You know, in the kitchen for you.
0: But that's a good question. I don't. Th- I don't really try to be creative in the sense you know, it's a process which, it's a process of simplicity very often more now. I do think, I say, why do we do that? I remember having those arguments with Julia Child when we, our our show together, she always said we started cooking together because I was in apprenticeship in 1949 and she came to France in 1949 and stayed there for two, three years. She was 23 years older than me. But at that time, she, she we started together, she said. So, yeah, there was a certain style and all that of the time so when i cook with her for example i remember we didn't have any we didn't have any recipe when we cooked together we did those shows we decided let's do stew tomorrow or whatever so it was probably more difficult for for the cameraman and so forth they didn't know where well, well, mm-hmm. <laughs> we were going to be but sure but we had no recipe so i cooked spinach so you know i grabbed spinach i just washed the spinach the silhouette I put them in a, in a skillet cover them, say, no, 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 we got to blanch. So in the old style, yes, when I work at the Plaza Tennis Paris, we drop the spinach in boiling water, salted water, and uh, in copper things, and boil them three, four minutes, drain them, cool them, press them into bowl, and we had those bowl of cooked spinach ready to be sautéed or on one thing or another. Mm-hmm. I don't do that anymore now. She was still doing this, and so we argue about those old Style And in a sense, we got many letters saying he was so much more French than I was because
1: this because <laughs> uh, is the old That's style? So funny. That's a yeah. funny story. I, didn't, I never heard about that one. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting because already at that time, you know, you're talking and describing the evolution of the techniques, you know, that between like, you know, what she knew from blanching, you know, the spinach and then, you know, your experience so now if we fast forward, you know, all those years, we have seen so many as well changes, you know, in terms of techniques in in, in the cuisine, correct? Yes. So there's a lot of things that you know, there's still, you know, some reference to the classic, you know, French techniques, but there's so many other things that have been modernized or even coming from different, you know, countries okay. that are changed I mean, in know, the world of cuisine.
0: Twenty-four thousand restaurants in New York, so the amount of ethnicity we are here is unmatched anywhere in the world. So you know, if you keep your mind open, I mean I just did that book on chicken. The point is that I could probably do a book of ten thousand recipes of chicken from West Africa to Turkey, from you know, Italy to to Russia. So you know so if you keep your mind open, when you work with anyone you work with, you always learn something, you know.
1: You know, I want to talk to you about obviously books and, and everything, but you just mentioned you know, chicken. And it seems that chicken is, is taking like a very special place in your heart, in your life, you know, the, You know, with the last book and then as well some of the painting that you have done, you know, right. or chicken. So why, why this obsession about about chicken?
0: I don't know if it's an obsession, but I was born in bourg en bresse you know, in France. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the breast chicken are quite considered one of the greatest in France. Beautiful white plumage, blue feet red cock, so the blue, blanc, rouge, color of the French flag, you know. So when I was an apprentice, everyone who come to Bourg uh, that will have chicken in one way or the other, you know. So that's the way it was. So it started that and after that, wherever I was in the world, you know, I remember waking up in Africa too and hearing either in the bell of the church or the, the, the chicken outside or the cock, you know, celebrating the morning. So there is that certain Quietness and a certain tranquility that maybe I associate with that. And to tell you the truth, when I did that book of chicken, I did not want to do a book of cookbook. I have 31 books. So I said, I want to do, can you? Can I do a book of chicken panning? She said, absolutely. As soon as we start sending a picture of chicken, she said, can we have a recipe with that? I said, no, that's what I don't <laughs> want to do. So I have a book called The Apprentice, that published in 2000, something like that, which is a cook's memoir, where that the first time that I wrote a book, a cook's memoir, was talking about my life, my whole life, and actually there is a a video, there is a PBS did an American Master on me, and the American Master is when our show on PBS, and they really follow the apprentice there. I mean the the from the moment that I was in the kitchen and so forth. So I decided to do that that chicken book in that same style a little bit. That is, there is some narrative recipe where I say my mother used to do this, that too, but basically they are not really feasible, many of them. And they just story of chickens, story of eggs. When I was in Africa, when I was in China, and all that, when I was in Vietnam, the way they eat eggs there, and the surprise price for me. But in fact, you know, when I was doing that book, again, my publisher or editor rather, say, you know, I think we need more technique and we need a bit more ingredient. I said, no, I don't want it. She said, I said, all right, fine. So I'm from Lyon, as you know, and in Lyon, a very famous, formidable woman in Lyon of Cook, I mean, uh, 12 restaurants in my family around Lyon, all owned by by women. So La Mère Brasier in Lyon, one of the first, that's where even Bocuse did his apprenticeship there. Very well known. So La Mer Brasier still, a few years ago, I mean, she was dead, but the restaurant still there. She was very famous to do the poached chicken in a in a pig's bladder. So they inflated the pig's bladder. It was a poulet de breast, of course, chicken of breast with the truffle under the skin. In the pig's bladder, a carrot, an onion, and a leek, and poached slowly this way. It was brought to the dining room, all inflated, still deflated. They reduce the juice with a bit of butter. So you have the chicken blend like this. So it's extremely simple. Just post like that with reduction of the juice. So she wanted an ingredient. I said, okay, fine. Here is poulet mer brosier, one pig's bladder, two truffle, one poulet brasier. She said, what are you talking about? I said, you want an ingredient? So she said, all right. So they never, they didn't ask me again. So.
1: <laughs> That's funny. I, I can relate to it because a part of my family lives on Monsieur Son, so in Buxy uh, really and yeah. So, uh, close yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, poulet de bresse, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I know it quite well. Uh, yeah. So, if I ask you what, about like a dish or recipe that holds a special place in your heart for you, is it going to be around chicken or is it something? Oh, something no, else? of course
0: it is. I mean, you know, I think that the recipe that you have as a child whether you come from, you know, from Turkey or from West Africa, have become very visceral, very essential, you know. I mean, they transcend the level, the level of the the physiological function of food. It's more than that. It's home. It's family. It's love. It's security, you know. And that's what those kids, when you are at war in Africa, they dream at night of those dishes, which, as I say, transcend that level. It's more getting home. So, yes. If I taste the, the dishes of the poulet à la creme that my mother used to do, I would say that my mother poulet à la creme, because I, I, I predict that, especially that in my training of cooking, uh, there was never any recipe in apprenticeship. And even when I work at the plaza, Attendee place in France, no, we did things according to, to, according to the rule of the house. So it was a question of, it wasn't a question of creating. There was no creation at the time, way before nouvelle Cuisine. It was just conforming. And the Plaza Athene in Paris was very well known for the lobster souffle, which they still do, I believe. We were 48 chefs in the kitchen. 48 of us could have done it. You would never have known who had done it. You know, that was the way. So if I have the chicken of my mother or the lobster souffle of the Plaza Athene, or the striped bass of the pavillon in New York, I would tested that the striped bass of the pavillon. The, you know, there is those
1: tastes which remain with you
0: like this, which are a bit essential.
1: Yeah. And and if there's like one special dish that you found most challenging that you had to prepare?
0: Well, you know, in your life? Maybe the greatest dish like that, which is challenging, if you don't have the right ingredient, <laughs> is probably bread and butter. Bread and butter. Bread and butter. <laughs> <laughs> If you have the most <laughs> extraordinary baguette and the most extraordinary butter, it's difficult to yeah. beat bread and butter. <laughs>
1: so. I like your answer. So back to this idea of simplicity. Yeah, I like that. That's that's very cool. You, you know, with all the number of years you know that you had in the culinary world, there is a secret of maintaining longevity in this industry, which is, as we know, very demanding.
0: Well, you have to be hanged. You have to be hungry, like I am already ready to eat something, and you have to drink a lot of wine. That helps too along the way. But no, you know, <laughs> food, food, uh, food brings people together. And for us, you know, when my daughter was a year and a half old, I hold her in my arm and I say Allez mélange, so she stirred the pot, so she quote eat it because she quote made it with her father. And then she stirred the pot. When I had my granddaughter, who now just finished her first year at Boston University. She was four years old. I had a little stool next to me. And I said, okay, give me the salad. you think it's clean here? Yeah. Those carrots, what do you think? We need parsley. Let's go to the garden. So we go to the garden. She said, I said no, that's shy. I've tested that parsley. You know, that's tarragon. Then I take her to the market. I say, I need tomato. Make sure they are ripe. Did you smell those pear? You think those pear are ripe? So, you know, she touched the food. It's a mean of communication. Not only there, then after you sit down and eat together. I mean, our family structure was based On this, you know, as a very, very important part of it. And for me, as I said, there is no place as secure as the kitchen. When a kid comes back from school, you hear the voice of your mother, your father, the smell of the kitchen, the ingredient, the noise of the kitchen. Those are very essential remembrance that stay with you, you know. So this is our, our world, you know, but this is not necessary people... The world of all people I mean but in our world of kitchen that has always been an essential part of it you know so
1: yeah and I think this is a very important message that you are giving here is you know for everyone that are listening is it is very important to have and bring the children when they are you know young in the kitchen working with the parents or the grandparents and then have that connections you know around food, because it stays your whole life. You know, I had that chance, you know, to have that with my mom. My dad passed away when I was young, but I, I cook with my mom. She went from the Lorraine, you know, air, air region. So I've done quiche Lorraine when I was six, you know, from scratch. And, you know, I have, I have done a lot of recipes, you know, with her. She told me how to make, um, you know, sauce bechamel when I was allowed to <laughs> stay in front of yeah. the stove. But that's, you know, that connection that, you know, you know, like 15 years after, I I I still remember. So I think this is a very strong message that you, you know, that you just shared. So, you know, you have done so many things in your life between the career that you've done in so many restaurants, writing books and, you know, writing articles in, you know, newspaper, appearing of so many TV shows. Which of those roles do you find most challenging? Actually, the beauty of
0: it is that I did all of this. I mean, if I were on television every day, all the time, I would find that pretty boring. You know? Likewise, if I have only a consultant for a restaurant or behind the stove even, or mini or writing book. So but by doing all of this, it's, uh, you know, it's always cooking. It's already amount to the same thing to a certain extent. But uh, you have that diversity, which is very important, and the sharing of it. I think it was uh, Louis XVIII in in the in the, the 18th century. Who Talleyrand was the minister of and at the Congress of Vienna in 1824, I believe. Talleyrand said, "We need the, uh, 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 the king." Told him, "I'm going to give you more advice." I so said, "No, I need more cook, more cook," and that was the idea. You know, especially in our time of polarization, where we are, you know, sitting down together at the table and eating and sharing the food. Even if you get into an argument, usually it doesn't get violent or whatever, because there is a certain, I don't know, a certain culture to attach to the table, to the heating habit and all that, which makes it. So it's very, very important to be able. And you know, look, anywhere you go in the world, I remember traveling with my wife in Yugoslavia, in small country. So. And, uh, you know, people look at you behind the curtain, so the foreigners, you know, those brands. And then you stop at the, at the little bistro local. You don't speak the language or anything. You order by sign the food that they are a bottle of wine. Then people start sitting around you. You send them a bottle of wine and hour later your friend, they don't speak the same language, but you share. So, you know, yes, the sharing of wine, whether it's uh, food anywhere in the world, uh, make people bring together. So it's a very important. And if you can cook with friends, it's even more important. But the sharing of food is important. Yeah.
1: So twice you mentioned wine and the importance of wine and the yeah. pleasure of drinking wine. I'm so Beaujolais. do you have
0: uh, I'm from Beaujolais? What you
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. So do you have a favorite wine that you would like to enjoy?
0: Yeah, the the, the free wine. And that's what I the one that I enjoy the most. <laughs> <laughs> Free wine. The
1: one that we give to you? People bring gift? bring me wine all the time. So regardless. Okay. Doesn't matter where it's come from, correct? So. Well,
0: <laughs> it doesn't and it does, depending on what okay. it tastes like. But uh, yeah, usually I'm happy with relatively simple wine too. I mean, we have a a bull group here. We are like fifty people on a bull club that we do. And the first dinner this year is actually in my house on the 27th of this month. So we'll have a 50 50 or 60 people sit down dinner from 1 in the afternoon until 10 at night. I think we drank usually in the area of 70, 75 bottles of wine on that day. But I mean, there is that amount of people for like 10 hours, you know. So usually there I will have some, you know, rosé white they a great deal from france or northern spain or italy and so forth
1: okay okay what do you think about the wine from the west side of the country and then or you know oregon or a western
0: state there is some good wine much better now i mean it used to be that i remember i was very friend with robert mondavi yeah oh yeah many years ago and i remember going there in the late 60s, no, but yeah, late 60s, 70s. And I remember they had those Chardonnay who were so hokey because they wanted to duplicate, mm-hmm. you know, one of the greatest, you know, a great mercer or whatever, which... So, and I remember going to a place where they were putting shaving of oak into the wine to get the taste. Wow. Yeah. So my father would have said, this is this is a cabinet maker wine. wine. <laughs> it's like wood. <laughs> it's not a, a vineyard white, wine, so... Anyway, this has changed a great deal without any question. And fortunately, the price are changing also because up to now, very often American wine are expensive. They're still expensive. I was in Sonoma. I was in Sonoma not too long ago, a few months ago for a a wine, for a film, a film festival. I was invited to to do a thing. And I remember with my friend, we go out in bistro in Sonoma and you have wine there from 22 to $28 a glass. I mean, you know, in wine country,
1: that's expensive. That is expensive. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, the the quality definitely is there. And, you know, I I always love to make a joke on my brother-in-law who lives in Burgundy. And I always, when I come, you know, every year back to France, I always bring like bottle of wine from the U.S., you know, in my luggage. And I say, Hey, you know, drink this, (laughs) try this. And he said, Damn it, those Americans—they are making very good wine. I'm like, yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> it's
0: different, but you know, I had a, a screaming—I am—I had screaming eagle not too long ago. So over three thousand dollars a bottle. I mean, it's like jam, you know, and the 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 the, the, the amount of fruit and the amount of alcohol in it is, is enormous. So it's not, you know, occasionally. Occasionally, I have nothing against a great wine. Yes, I enjoy it occasionally. But then I am not very much into wine testing, where you have one tablespoon, you have to analyze, you have to go. Oh, yeah. I want to go out and have a a taco and a beer somewhere. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I agree. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh Thinking about like, you know, all the generation of chefs and I have a lot of, you know, young cooks that are, you know, either coming out of the CIA or of uh, Johnson and Wales, you Uh know, listening to the podcast. So. What, what advice would you give uh, to young aspiring chefs that are entering the culinary world today?
0: You know, during my time, and certainly the cook, as I say, was was very low on the social scale. So you never thought of being famous or whatever. So it was, mm-hmm. in a sense, easier. And uh, I would tell now a young chef to try to work with the best possible chef that he can. And But at that point, when you go somewhere and you work with uh, Thomas Keller, you're not going to tell him what to do, you know. So you just have to say, yes, chef, that's about it. And you have to look at the food through his eye, through his sense of aesthetic, whether it coincides with your taste or your sense of aesthetic is immaterial. You do that for a year or two, a couple of years, and you work with another one for a couple of years, looking at it through their point of aesthetic, and you do that with a third and fourth one. If you do that for seven, eight years, you have absorbed an enormous amount of point of view, an enormous amount of knowledge too. Now you're going to give it back. And now, of course, you filter it through your sense of aesthetic, through your sense of taste. Now you're doing your own stuff. Because ultimately, you cannot escape yourself. You are who you are. You know, I I teach at Boston University for 37 years. So I used to give a class called the ultimate meal, which was a roast chicken, a boiled potato, and a salad. You know, but it has to be done properly, temperature properly, you know, Boston lettuce, properly washed, drained. a bit of the chicken fat with the olive oil, mixing the dressing too and so forth. Well, I have 12 students, so I would, I do a demonstration showing them the whole thing, they test it, and they all go to the stove, with the basket, the same ingredient to do it. I used to say, please, don't try to blow my mind. I know you want to blow my mind and make it different. I make it different than the guy next to you. You don't have to do that. I say, there is 12 people here today. I'm going to have 12 different chicken. Two of them will be overcooked. Two of them undercooked. Two of them are going to be cold, but they will be different. So you don't have to torture yourself to be different. Try to cook more with your guts because ultimately you are different than the person next to you. So you cannot really do it exactly the same way. And that's the beauty for me of a great restaurant. When I was at Lutece in New York, you know, people say the greatest restaurant in America. or Maybe, yes, maybe no. It, it wasn't this goal. But the point is that I could have gone there with something on my eyes and I tested, I said, that's saltner food. See, and that's the idea. You, know, you come to the point where you do your own food and some people are going to, you know, to, to coincide with your taste and like it more than others. But the point is that uh, this is the idea for me of a great restaurant where the personality of the chef is there, where it's not like often young chefs want to do no, a little bit of text mex a little bit of this, a little bit of that to be because everyone does it too. And you end up getting the same stuff all over too. No, because as I said, ultimately, if you learn enough from different people and then you filter it and you do your own stuff, then it will be unique.
1: you know. And, you know, in, in the, the podcast, I have had a lot of chefs and, there's basically two different clusters of chefs. The one that are really diehard that said that, you know, you, you know, I they want to have in their team and hire people that have done, you know, culinary school or they have been to culinary school. Yeah. And then some others that said it's not the most important. The most important is, you know, staging as different, you know, at different restaurants and then getting your hands-on experience. So what what's your thoughts on it? Either one, either one, it depends on the people, you know. I mean, I,
0: okay, I go somewhere, I was in DeMo in Iowa somewhere giving a class. So the guy is doing a dinner there for 100 people, for PBS, whatever. The food is okay, I mean, not that great. And then the chef talked to me after, and the chef would say, you know, here, I cannot get this too. I only have three guys in the kitchen. I don't have... You know that he's apologetic to a certain extent. He realized that it's not. It could be better than that, too. But then I go to the next town, you have the same chef who does the food, which is not better than the other one. But he's absolutely certain this is extraordinary food. His mother tells him it's extraordinary. His wife tells him it's extraordinary. He does that. And if he asks my opinion, if I tell him the truth, he would say, look, I cook fantastic food for that chef. I mean, it was so great. And the guy is really so... You have someone there who has reached the limit of its taste, and it's not going to go farther. And it's often the case with chefs, which is difficult. When you have a food critic, who can go farther than you can, and can taste better than you can, and go farther than you do. It's often difficult for some people. You know, I know a lot of chefs who can run a good kitchen and are very good technicians. They have a good food course, they go there. But they're relatively lousy cooks. They have a limit of taste who doesn't go above a certain level. And there is nothing you can do there. Certainly when you talk about Daniel Boulu or Tom Colicchio or a great chef like this, it's someone with a technician, but someone also who has taste, who has creativity, with a great
1: palate and so forth. So those are ad, but not all the chefs are this way. You know, This is, you know, this idea of, you know, balancing between, you know, techniques and creativity and, and as well, I guess, you know, being able to deliver on a consistent way, you know, day after day, correct? And, and like, a, you know, in the kitchen, in a restaurant.
0: True. I mean, you know, for me, Nouvelle Cuisine was Nouvelle Cuisine because I knew what it was before Nouvelle Cuisine. And even in a restaurant like my mother or my aunt has in France, who cost five francs when I came to the restaurant, one dollar for the whole meal. My mother served fish like, you know, whiting and mackerel, mean, expensive fish. But when those fish came into the dining room. It was on a platter. We never, never, never once served something on a plate that didn't exist, you know, until nouvelle cuisine. And then all of a sudden, so the whole thing changed there in, at at many levels, and probably to a certain extent, and the aesthetic of the food itself and the decoration become too too complicated and too precious. What I call punctuation cooking when people have little bottles to do a drop, a comma, a drop, a question mark to all around the plate, there is no sauce, keep my bread in it. I say, no, no, this is not great
1: cooking to me. (laughs) I never heard that expression. (laughs) That's that's really cool. (laughs) I will use that again. I want to make sure that, you know, I'm looking at the time, but I, I definitely want to talk about your other passion apart from cooking which is obviously painting. So how did this passion come about? This, this is something that started like early in life?
0: Oh, I have painting from 1961 to, to okay. a long, long time. When I started at Columbia, at some point I took a class in sculpture, I think at Columbia, in drawing. And I started panning. But so I painted all of my life, but up to seven, eight years ago, maybe, I gave probably hundreds of panning that I did and then my friend Tom here said, I'm going to do an outside. And we have an outside now. And I think that I'm selling more panning than cookbook now. And, oh, cookbook, uh, okay. And, and he sells panning for an enormous price that I would never ask myself. So, you know, that I'm very lucky because I would never have done that myself. The second thing that I would never have done, I have a foundation. And it was my son-in-law, R- Rolly and my daughter, who created the, the foundation. At some point, You know, he went to Johnson & Wales, he teached there as he did like 14 years, whatever at Johnson & Wales, that he went there, he had been to college, but he went there to get a master and eventually he got a PhD a few years ago. So he's a full professor now, very good writer too. So at some point he said, what do you want to teach now? You taught all your life. I said, maybe people who have been a bit disenfranchised by life, like people who come out of jail, homeless people, you know, drug former drug addict, people like this, not young people. So I feel that we can, with the book, we have the technique, we work through Communauté Kitchen. In six, eight weeks, you can train someone to peel potato, clean salad, and do something at the beginning of the, you know, at the base of the kitchen. And if that person take it to heart, you know, then maybe five years later, that person is the chef there. You know, so and that you can redo a life. So that's what we've done. Uh, we, we've been very, very lucky, and uh, and many many chefs have done video for us to help for uh, this. So that the foundation has been very very good. Yeah, and again, I would never have done that without my son-in-law.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I met him at Johnson and Wells, In fact, oh, you did? I was there at the at the last symposium. Yeah, yeah. We had dinner together. So oh, great. So going back, to, I'm just curious about painting. What are you painting at the moment? You know, okay. is it like? Are you moving from you know, like realistic painting to more abstracts? Yes, I, think I read about this. No, not, not, really a change. I may go one to abstract
0: and move back to something else. I do a lot of flowers. Flowers okay. for me are the perfect media between abstract and and, mm-hmm. and and representational painting because I start adding color and all that. So, so my daughter, for example, like my abstract maybe better too. So yeah, and. Ultimately, what I do a lot of is menus, illustration of menus. We do, like for, we had our convention, our mm-hmm. thing a few weeks ago in New York. Yeah, in New York, uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, the menu that we did was sold for $22,000. It was a big menu that I drew And did the menu inside, and I left a big uh, mat outside, and there was about eight chef cooking. They all signed the menu, and then, we had 200 people, but each table of 10 was hosted by a famous person like Lydia Bastianich, Tom mm-hmm. Colicchio, Andrew Zimmer, and so forth. So, so they all signed it, too. So again, you know, so they sold that menu and some of my planning. So yeah, I do a lot of... I have three friends, in fact, this summer in the last month, who have their family getting married, uh, their son, daughter, too, so mm-hmm. I will do a menu for that. I do a menu for that. And we duplicate those menu to give to people and so forth. So, yeah.
1: So uh, a question on this, on painting is, is it like the approach of painting the similar of like when you create like a dish and your recipe? There are similarities, you know, I mean, when you are a professional
0: chef, you know, again, you go by taste, you don't go by recipe. So. If you do a chicken uh, saute with morel, for example, each time you send one, let's say you do 10, 12, 14 times the same evening, different table, it will taste exactly the same when I send it. If, however, someone was really taking note exactly of the 12th time that I made it, 12th time it would be different. Slight different. Why? Because maybe my fire is harder there or I have a different skillet or uh, the, the chicken is a bit thinner or thicker or this or that. So, you know, you cook... You adjust, you cook, you adjust, you add a tablespoon of water, get a bit dry. Of course, you know in a professional kitchen you have stock, you have this, so you have tablespoon of that, taste adjust. So that at the end everything tastes the same. Even though it not well, likewise in the in panning, you know, when I start a panning, very often I don't really know wherever I I am going, you know, and it mm. takes a while. But at some point usually the panning takes a hold of you, and then I react to it. I react, I put that color here. I don't even try to validate it. I put that shape, that color here because it feels good, it feels right. So, that type of reaction to it, the adding is similar to uh, maybe that cooking in the
1: kitchen you know. Okay. So, I, I want to finish with a series of rapid fire questions, if it's okay with you. Oh, boy. <laughs> no, no, it's easy. So, what's your favorite guilty pleasure food?
0: Well, as I said, Free food. Maybe people bring me food. free food, free wine. <laughs> yeah. Free food, free wine. They bring me. Oh, I'm bringing you a pizza. Great, fine. I have pizza for work.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or maybe a nice piece of bread and butter. Then yeah, you know, absolutely. back to what
0: story. That, I can't miss with that. Yes.
1: Besides, obviously, all the cookbooks that you have written. Is there three cookbooks that you have seen from others that inspired you a lot during you know your career? Certainly the La Rousse Gastronomique here, mm-hmm.
0: the joy of cooking, America, it's another view, large view. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a book like uh, Thomas Keller is always interesting to look at. But, you know, I'm happy. I did a book called La Technique, La Méthode uh, more than, 50, yeah. more than 50 years ago, and they are still in print. And I don't Absolutely. cook the same way. I don't cook the same way I cooked 50 years ago. But The way you sharpen a knife or peel an asparagus, you know, a portion
1: egg is the same. That's why those remain kind of constant. So, if there would be one techniques that or skills that you know a young chef would have, what do you think that you know would be the like the most important one?
0: Probably to sharpen his knife properly. Most <laughs> knives are not sharp enough for me. <laughs> okay. Okay. What is the biggest pet peeves in the kitchen for you? Maybe now to fuss around with the plate too much, to clean up that plate again and over, to do little that and all that. By then, the food is cold. It's cold and it has been overtouched too. And so I don't feel like eating it. You know, you have cooking like Chinese or Indian and all that where the decoration is totally different, but there is something natural about that food to fall on the plate the way it is too. I'm not saying that, of course, it's nice when you have a a dish nicely presented, but you don't have to torture it.
1: So beside the, the classics, what condiments, spices or sauces, dressing, do you like to have on hand?
0: Oh, oh boy, the hot salsa,
1: you know, the hot salsa.
0: Okay. And have a fair amount of Chinese, you know, the hot chili sauce. Yeah. Chinese uh, and the sesame oil and uh, and of course all kind of other I don't know thing that I use the cherry vinegar, uh, you know, the type of uh, wine vinegar from from Japan and stuff like that. I use a little bit of okay. all of that, yes.
1: And not the Dijon. Oh no! no, I, I, I,
0: of course I use (laughs) that (laughs) too. Of course,
1: of course. The last one, which is more like a joke. How how is your uh, dog Gaston? Is still doing well? Gaston, Gaston is doing very well. Yeah. Gaston
0: he's, he's around. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> he's around. So, yeah,
1: do you I think cooked,
0: that you I, I cook chicken for him, you know?
1: Yeah, eggs. I wanted to ask you if your dog is like a special dog compared to other dogs, as he has developed it, it, like a it, gourmet it, palette working, it, living with you.
0: Yeah, he's very fussy. I mean, I cooked <laughs> chicken. I had to give him pieces by pieces in his mouth. And he extended his, extended his nose. He smelled it. He looked at me and said, You call yourself a chef? <laughs>
1: You know what? I think this is the best word of the end. (laughs) Thank you very much, chef. Thank you. I really appreciate the time. Uh, Merci. Merci beaucoup. Okay, (laughs) de rien. Au plaisir. Au revoir. Au
0: revoir.
1: And with that, we have reached the end of our time with the great Jack Pépin. His experiences and insights into the culinary world have truly been enlightening, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. It's been an absolute pleasure hosting Jack Pépin on Flavors Unknown. Remember, it's not just about the ingredients we use, but the stories they tell, and no one weaves a more compelling narrative in the kitchen than Jack Pépin. If you love this episode, please share it with a fellow food enthusiast. You can follow the podcast on any podcast platform, and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at flavorsunknown.com. Before we wrap up, I just want to say a massive thank you again to Jacques Pépin for his time and generosity in sharing his stories with us. As we sign off, I encourage all of you to keep exploring, keep tasting, and most importantly, to never lose your curiosity in the face of the unknown. This is your host of the Flavors Unknown signing off. Until next time, bon appétit. Please join us for our next episode where we will continue our culinary adventure always hunting for the elusive unknown flavors. And until then, keep in mind that the people who likes to eat are always the best people.
0: Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at flavorsunknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.